The following sermon was delivered by our parish associate, the Rev. Dr. Patty Kitchen, during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Kitchen. A reading from Isaiah 11. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall pray over the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O spirit of a revolutionary love, speak to us of life that cannot be tamped down nor contained. Breathe upon us this holy hour and renew the flame of faith within us. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Christmas in August. I was not sure if in the midst of COVID-19, it was the right time to continue this thread from the past two summers. In 2018, we focused on the notorious MMG, Mary, the mother of God. Last summer, we considered Joseph's surprising decision to marry Mary. Christmas does not pause for wars or pandemics. I still believe if we read traditional Advent narratives in August, we can often hear good news from a non-traditional perspective. And when we, have we ever needed good news more than now? As I've told some of you, I visited Estes Park, Colorado as a child and was in awe of a fully lit Christmas tree in the main lodge in August. The summer counselors being distant in December, celebrated with gifts and verse in August. On this August day, I'm in New Orleans with family. From the age of 12, Louisiana was my home for many years. And 15 years ago this month, during the tragedy of Hurricane Katrina, I lived in Shreveport in North Louisiana, 
where 25,000 evacuees arrived the first weeks of September 2005. It was a painful and fertile time. And it was then that I met Victor from Liberia, West Africa. Prior to August 2005, I had worked with rape victims, prisoners, and survivors of apartheid, but I had never met anyone like Victor Kudi. Victor had been a semi-pro soccer player and then a family farmer prior to the violence inflicted upon Liberia by Charles Taylor's horrific regime. Taylor led a gruesome civil war when 200,000 Liberians died at the hands of his army of child soldiers. Charles Taylor held two-thirds of the country and plundered every resource he could lay his hands on. Victor, his wife Sarah, and their eight children walked endless miles and paddled homemade canoes toward the Ivory Coast to escape the terror of Liberia. And then, resentful of the refugees pouring into the Ivory Coast, a school full of Liberians learning English was bombed by local residents, killing Victor's three eldest sons. After 14 long years in an Ivory Coast refugee camp, near starving, though hunting to survive, the United Nations granted their request to relocate to the United States. And in 2004, Victor and his family flew to New Orleans. But once there, they were cheated by their assigned advocate who absconded with the $5,000 intended to help settle their family. Victor and Sarah found work at a nearby hotel assisted by a stranger, an angel they insisted, named Michael. One year later, in August 2005, the Cootie family heard talk of a dire hurricane approaching New Orleans. Hurricane was a word unfamiliar to them. So taking their cue from hotel employees, Victor and Sarah gathered their family in a room on the third floor of the hotel and watched as the storm pelted the city. And then the levees broke. They watched the water rise to the second floor of the hotel and on his knees, Victor told God that surely after all they had witnessed and survived, water would not wash them away. Eventually, they were transported to the Causeway Bridge where buses took them five hours north to a Red Cross shelter in a Shreveport Coliseum with a mile of mattresses covering the floor. It was there that I met Victor's family on a Sunday morning when we took a church van to the Coliseum to offer our services and our playground to evacuated families. As I walked down the steps onto the vast floor, there was a large family, all dressed, hands in their laps, seated in a line on their mattresses. Victor, Sarah, Yuri, Vlandi, Edward, Zior, and the smallest one was Lovety. I asked if they would like to go to church. Church? Church? They nodded yes, and off we went. A few weeks later, I learned from Vlandi that members of a Baptist church had seen them at the shelter and told them that they would take them to the church as soon as they were dressed and ready to go. But when I saw them and said church, they became Presbyterians. 
Gradually, the hurricane friends joined choirs, the board of deacons, attended Sunday school and youth group. That December, they knelt and were all baptized at the First Presbyterian Church. Obviously, I have left out many details. I will never know what it is to walk in Victor's shoes for two moons for two months. But his quiet stories of survival, of faith and resilience tested, and of his good humor taught me to listen to all human stories more closely, to stop making harmful assumptions about strangers. His stories taught me to pay closer attention to international reporting and The Economist and on the BBC and PCUSA websites, to try and hear the evening news with empathy rather than judgment. Nations can become names, human beings with beating hearts that can break. When we try to walk two moons in the shoes of a stranger, the institutional becomes personal and we encounter the sacred. But how do we do that? Through research on the unusual relationships that grew between the hurricane friends and a handful of Presbyterians, I learned that we are shaped by many factors, but three in particular. First, experience during one's youth or childhood with someone, often a stranger, who is poor or in pain. Second, experience of a family ethos of altruism in one's own home or in that of a relative or friend. Altruism, an other-centered perspective, is both encounter and contagious. And third, experiencing a difficult theological or moral decision made by church or corporate leaders, by parents or public servants. A number of these Southern Presbyterians were affected during the period of civil rights. In 1960, the elders at First Presbyterian Shreveport voted to not allow blacks to enter the church sanctuary. With soft-spoken conviction, the pastor, Dr. Benny Benfield, and assistant um, pastor, Herb Barks, replied they would quietly depart. No fist-pounding, but clear truth-telling. Black lives mattered to God and to them. The following night, the elders wrestled reconsidered and reversed their decision. The church and new convictions grew from this moral encounter. I believe that the intersection of Victor and the Advent narrative is the moral encounter of Isaiah 11 prefaced in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, not pastors, senators, any president, mayor, or governor, but the people. There's a chasm between the people and the institutional that truth-telling and deep listening bridge. The God of furrowed brows and fire in the belly sent Jesus to this earth as savior and prophet of a revolutionary love. The more I researched Isaiah's peaceful kingdom, I realized it is a peaceable revolution that Isaiah describes, a revolution with legs, voice, and a pulsing heart. When we pray, thy kingdom come, think what it could mean if we pray, thy revolution come, thy will be done on earth. We 
are called to take Jesus seriously when he says that the last shall be first. We are called to take Isaiah seriously when he describes predators caring about their prey, a wolf living with a lamb, not threatening or killing it. Isaiah's promises point to a reversal in the historical predicament of Israel, a fundamental change in the natural order that rises from the knowledge and experience of God's ways. Years ago, Paul Tillich taught that all problems concerning the relation of love to power and justice become insoluble if love is basically understood as emotion. Instead, when we exercise love as a muscle, not dependent upon our feelings, we are capable of what is immense and we are bold enough to risk it. Love is a muscle. Love is a muscle that lifts justice above the canopy of complacency and of history. Love is a muscle that our nation is being called to stretch and exercise in ways we have not done in decades, in centuries. It was a muscle stretched in December 1914. Joy Noel, Merry Christmas in French, is one of a number of films based on the true story of the 1914 Christmas Eve truce in the trenches of World War I. The music of O Come Faithful and a common spirit summoned by Christmas led soldiers on both sides to emerge from their trenches to encounter strangers, enemies, sharing family photos, candies, cigarettes, and a raucous soccer game. It was a peaceable revolution that lasted only hours, but reshaped the remaining days of soldiers' lives. Musician John McCutcheon writes of the morning after in his ballad, Christmas in the Trenches. Soon daylight stole upon us and France was France once more. With sad farewells, we each prepared to settle back to war. But the question haunted every heart that lived that wondrous night. Whose family have I fixed within my sights? For the walls they'd kept between us to exact the work of war had been crumbled and were gone forevermore. To picture reality in another's shoes requires holy imagination. It is counterintuitive, like a Christmas Eve truce. Isaiah calls us into uncharted territory to walk in other's shoes, to learn the visceral language of empathy for all. Last week, a Habitat for Humanity friend described Congressman John Lewis at work at an Atlanta site in 1990, pausing to have lunch with a group of children. They were told of the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma because blacks were denied the right to vote and how he was hit hard on the head with a rock and beaten. Lewis showed the children the scar, and one young boy looked up and said, did it hurt? Lewis looked at him and said, yes, it hurt, but doing nothing hurts more. Ignoring things that are wrong hurts more. Seeing people denied their rights hurts more because my head healed up, but rights denied hurt everyone. Are we called 
to a faith that is safe or to a faith that calls us to change and to collectively change the course of history. As did the soldiers on Christmas 1914, we can emerge from safe trenches, spiritual, racial, emotional, political, where we have hunkered down and willing to take risks to exercise the muscle of love, we can help lead Isaiah's peaceable revolution. Amen. And now go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage and hold fast to that which is good. Render to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the afflicted, honor all persons, love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.